Hello, everyone. I'm Pam Carroll. Welcome to this episode of Employment Matters. Employment Matters is a podcast series brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest and most prestigious network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms in the world. Today's topic is the gig economy. Joining me are Bruce Cross, it's from Cross, Gunter, Witherspoon, and Gelches in Arkansas. Hello, Bruce. Hello, Pam. How are you today? I'm happy to have you here. Thank Thanks you. for joining us. And we have Jan Lelly from Uzi Law Firm in Germany. Welcome, Jan. Hi, Pam. Nice to be here. Nice to have you here today. So the gig economy is a topic that is really on the rise and it's come into people's vocabulary, um, particularly employers who are grappling with a flexible workforce or a workforce that wants some flexibility. Uh, We like to refer to the gig economy as that general workforce environment in which short-term engagements, temporary contracts, and independent contract becomes commonplace. So I want to open it up with you, Bruce. How would you describe the presence of the gig economy in the region that you service your clients? Well, Pam, I, I think from a practical standpoint, you're seeing a lot more flexibility. There's, uh, I think some of it's generationally based and some of it is economy based, uh, where you see more and more individuals uh, and companies uh, trying to attract individuals, but just for partic- particular projects. Uh, so you see a lot of individuals, companies that go out and seek independent contractual relationships with individuals um, or other entities uh, for purposes of, of, of performing certain functions. Uh, you also see that with um, various businesses seeking to just have a project by project uh, type of approach. And so they will enter into a, a contractual arrangement with a, quote, independent contractor, close quote. Um, and, of course, that's great on the surface, but it brings with it a myriad of legal issues as to are they truly contract employee contractors or are they employees um, from a legal standpoint. Yeah, that's going to be a topic that we're going to examine uh, a little bit more in depth as we go along. I'd like to ask Jan, what is the prevalence of the gig economy in Germany? Is this something that employers are grappling with and workers are looking to seek out these type of arrangements? Yeah, I think um, coming from um, a country like Germany where labor markets is still compared to other countries, probably like the U.S., still heavily regulated. So we have a big um, set of laws where which is which are very protective for employees. We saw over the last couple of years the gig economy on the rise, uh, especially when you look at industries like IT, computer, or when you look at journalism, food delivery, or also social media content. So this is something where uh, a lot of also big employers, big car manufacturers, were um, more and more relying on gig economy people, so to say, um, to, in a way, I would not say circumvent, but at least to uh, get around the highly protective German labor and employment laws. So to have a little little bit more flexibility there. So let's revisit the uh, concept of what employers need to know to classify these workers or how they're classified as what makes a gig worker versus a traditional employee. Bruce? Well, 
I mean, there's a number of laws that you're going to have to address. And there's also both from a federal standpoint as well as a state standpoint. So um, if you're going to have somebody classified not as an employee, uh, you're going to have to be able to establish that they truly are independent under a variety of laws. So the National Labor Relations Act, for example, um, has flipped back and forth on who is an independent contractor and who is not, uh, and whether that person should be counted as an employee. So you're going to have to deal with that. You're also going to have to deal with wage and hour laws, because wage and hour laws are going to be looking at whether or not somebody should have been classified as an employee, but yet you've paid them as an independent contractor. So that's going to be an issue, because if you've paid them a contractual rate, but if they should have been an employee uh, and they worked who knows how many hours, because oftentimes some of these individuals aren't even working at the employer's work site, they're working away, they're working at home, they're working from some other offsite. Um, how do you track what the time was? You Well, you probably haven't. And so all you're doing is expecting that they're going to be performing the function. Um, if the government came in and said, that's wrong, or a plaintiff's lawyer filed a lawsuit and said that's wrong, then you're going to have to prove, A, that you classified them correctly, and then B, if you didn't, how are you going to go back and make that determination of how much you should have paid them uh, for those periods of time? So that's always a difficult thing to do. Um, so that's a that's a major issue there. And then, of course, there are state laws associated with, with both of those elements as well. You know, so, so there's a number of... Plus, you have just state like workers' comp laws where workers' compensation, what happens is that individual covered for workers' comp, what happens if they get injured? Are they an employee or are they truly an independent contractor? You know, there could be a claim that they're an employee, but you have no workers' compensation coverage for that individual. So now you've got legal potential liability issues associated with that as well. So making that appropriate determination on the front end is going to be critical. And I think that um, what's interesting about our organization, the ELA, is that, you know, often our members are servicing clients all around the world. You know, an existing client might have operations in the United States and they might be looking to set up shop and perhaps a research facility or something in Germany. So if I were an employer and looking to uh, classify employees, what are some of the parameters that I would need to be aware of based on the law in Germany? Yeah, it's interesting, Pam. When you when I just listened to what what Bruce said, uh, it, at first sight, it, it looks it, it feels that the criteria are quite similar, you know, to uh, to what uh, the test would, would be applied in the U.S. So in Germany, the the test which is applied to determine if somebody is an employee or an independent contractor is always are they established in the organizations? Are they integrated in the organization of uh, the employer? So are these people working under the direction of the management? Are they, for example, applying for vacation? Are they bound to certain working hours? Or can they determine that by themselves? So can they just decide if I come to work on a Tuesday or not? Or does the employer say you have to be here from, from Monday to Tuesday or from or Monday to Friday? So we di direct you. And this is this is the test, which, which is the general test, which is applied. So is this person integrated in the employer's um, organization? Do they receive directions from the management? And of course, we know that this is like very general uh, because uh, sometimes um, at the 
tricky things just come um, when you look more into the details. Um, but I, I think this is where also a German court would always look to. They would try to uh, apply the test and go into details of the relationship. They would ask, are you applying for vacation? How are your working hours structured? Do you receive directions from the management? And if these boxes are, so to say, ticked, they would probably um, very much likely qualified as an employee and not as a contractor. Bruce, do you have anything to add on that in terms of those uh, flags? I think uh, what Jan said about German law is interesting because this, in the States, um, the law varies even amongst different agencies. So the test for what might be an independent contractor for, let's say, for wage and hour purposes or for the National Labor Relations Act uh, or for um, under uh, different different varieties is different. They, they, can, they can change them. Um, what it would be under tax law is different. Uh, and then you have each of the states, what they consider to be uh, independent contractors for workers' comp, for unemployment. Uh, those all vary from state to state. So the tests may be similar in some regard, but there may be other additional elements that you're going to have to establish um, in each under each of these various laws. So that's what makes it extremely difficult in the states because you have to be able to understand that, well, I meet this certain test under tax laws, but I may not meet that test may not be applicable or certain elements of that may not apply when I move over into wage and hour laws or I move over into um, the, under the National Labor Relations Act. And so you have to understand, I've got to try to figure out, can I meet all of these different tests for this particular employee uh, or independent contractor? So that's that's the, the difficult part. Yeah, you raise an interesting point, though, because it's it just... Um, so much that has to come together for that. And if I were in an organization, I had responsibilities for human resources and I was considering this individual, um, I almost think I would want to have a checklist for that to say, okay, do I meet the uh, test for all things tax related? Do I meet it for all things, uh, you know, employee related? Well, I think that's accurate because, I mean, at least in the States, you have some general General rules, kind of like, you know, Jan said, you know, does this person basically have the flexibility? Are they more of an entrepreneur? Can they go out and uh, set their own schedule, make their own profits? All, all those kinds of general things uh, versus is there more direct control by the, by the um, quote, the, the, uh, the, the business entity that's either employing or contracting with them? The more, the more control that exists the more likely you're not an independent contractor. But even with the control, because the whole nature of the gig economy or the gig, gig worker is that, you know, I, I want some flexibility. I, I want to, you know, kind of be out there. But then as an employer, um, how about, because all this work is conducted remotely by and large, you know, what should employers consider when monitoring the gig staffer through technologies? Is that allowed? Yeah, from, from the German perspective, um, not only for the gig workers, but also for um, contractors, uh, data privacy plays an important role here. So um, there is a certain degree of control also, also via technology allowed. Uh, but as a rule of thumb, you would always say 
um, the more or the, the tighter the control, the more likely that this person is probably not longer a con contractor, but an employee. Um, and um, especially when you use um, uh, software, which as we all know, is, is, is able to very tightly control what people are doing. Um, so this is something where I would always advise um, companies in Germany to uh, not bring that too far. Uh, the level, level of control surely plays a role in, in the test, which, uh, for example, a agency, social security agency would, um, would apply. And this is also interesting um, to referring to what Bruce said. In, in, in Germany also, although there is this general test which is accepted, the social security agencies apply the, these tests themselves. And for example, labor court would also apply the same test, but would say we are not bound by what a social security agency has said for the same case. So it can happen that the labor court would qualify a person as a non-employee and say, we, we, we don't give you, for example, special protection under for dismissal because you're not an employee. And the, the, the same individual would be qualified by a social security agency as being, um, a, being an, an employee. So, so like, kind of, you know, completely the opposite. And the, the social security part of it can have huge financial uh, impacts on the company because if you, are not an, if you are not an employee, you are not paying social security taxes. And if you are, you, you probably have to pay that and probably have to pay that for the last couple of years where you deemed yourself being not uh, an employee, but you were in fact. So this is a huge thing where the same test even can... Uh, uh, lead to different results. I mean, I could just see you, I mean, as you're talking, shaking your head. And I think as I'm sitting here, you know, if I had HR responsibility, I'd be shaking my head going, do I even want to go there? Do, you know, do, why would I want to complicate things and add these gig workers? But I think in today's uh, workforce, it, it's the, um, would be helpful for me to maintain my human capital, so to speak, in my workforce by offering this kind of flexibility. Yeah, I think uh, in, in today's world, you, all, you automatically have to. I mean, you really do because there's just going to be the nature of, of the way the business is. And and particularly, in as, as Jan said earlier, some of these particular industries such as in, in IT-type related businesses, a lot of people work from homes. Um, and so you contract out. I even have clients that contract out sales work. And... Uh, you know, so they have independent sales folks who could supposedly sell for other businesses and other models, but they're also selling for them. Well, those are, you know, are they truly employees? Are they really independent contractors? They've got an agreement that says they're an independent contractor. But as we know in the States, a contract alone does not mean just because you write it down and say we're independent contractors and you and I agree that you're an independent contractor. That doesn't mean that the law is necessarily going to agree with that. And so it becomes tricky. And that's why front-end work becomes critical. You know, all the work on the front-end to try to get yourself in as best position as possible because, as Jan said, on the back-end, you're now looking at potential liability for that employer for, you know, multiple years in some instances. So let's talk briefly about that front end. Uh, let's leave our listeners with some real action steps or some things to consider. Uh, what would those top three things to be to put in place? Um, so to do the homework up front. Do you have any ideas, Jan? Um, yeah. So um, what what I what what we regularly see is 
that um, of course everything, or not of course, but um, best practice is to start with a um, with a contract which is drafted properly. Um, so the the contractual relationship is is the starting point. What Bruce just rightly said is that you you would of course never. Um, find yourself in a situation where you just can point to the contract and say, look, it says there this person is an independent contractor and then the court or uh, the agency would simply agree to that. That's obviously not that easy, but still the contract is is the starting point. So the contract has to, uh, from my point of view, always specify and clearly specify what type of relationship is that. So is it a contractor or is it an employee? Um, and when you decide, and this is true for, for many of industries at, the, at these times, when you decide to have a contractor or a self-employed person, then the contract has to reflect that. And most important, and I completely agree with, with Bruce here, most important how this contract is then performed in practice has to comply with the status. So an independent contractor or a um, self-employed person can't be treated as an employee. You can't force them to take holidays. You can't force them certain um, working hours. Um, and you have to give them the flexibility uh, to decide how to perform their jobs. This is the, the essence in the end. And this has to be not only reflected in the contract, but also in, in the practice, how these people, so to say, work for you. That's great. We um, are able to actually offer even a broader perspective right now because we're fortunate enough to have uh, Angelo Zambelli from uh, Studio Legal in Italy join us to also lend some expertise on our gig economy question. Thanks for joining us, Angelo. We wanted to have a perspective. What we're trying to give our listeners today is a perspective on what they need to do in the workforce, the employer, what do they need to do up front to set the stage for taking on gig workers and offering that flexibility to their workforce? It's a very debated issues because uh, uh, we are waiting for the first uh, decision of our Supreme Court in Italy. Uh, riders are on the, on the stage. And so I totally agree with what has been said uh, before me by Jan and Bruce, uh, of course, the judges look at the contract for as the first step. So, uh, employer acting in the gig economy, of course, it's a it's a, a bit wild frontier. The law doesn't is not able to cover all the situation and all the the cases that the market are, are is producing uh, recently. And I've seen uh, a big mess in, in the judges trying to classify such riders or uh, workers on the gig economy as employee or self-employer. So they are struggling because the law doesn't provide rules for such uh, liquid uh, situation. They are liquid workers. And, and the contract, of course, is, is the... The starting point, and because in the contract, at least in our first cases that we had in Italy, was a, a, a tribunal, labor tribunal of Turin, and then the court of appeal uh, changed a little bit the decision. Now we're waiting for the Supreme Court. Uh, the contract was uh, giving them to the riders the freedom to 
waive the proposal, not to work even if in the shift and uh, of work. And so the point is it was too liquid to classify them as a real employee. But in the meanwhile, the legislature is taking some step, it's taking some step right now. So we have a draft law almost in place that add, uh, let's say, add uh, um, rights and protection to such a liquid worker, not classifying as employee, so not from the main entrance, but from the window, giving them protection, even if they are not classified as a normal subordinated worker, but a freelancer that can accept or not on the basis, on contractual basis. So the, the state so far is a big uncertainty at the moment in our country. We're waiting for such a first decision. Probably the two first degree didn't recognize the status of employment relationship to such a liquid workers, but probably the legislation in the next year will take some step and will give and grant them higher protection than what is being done until now. So as you're doing that waiting game, what do you advise your clients if they're going to consider gig workers? You can't, you can't forecast the, the, develop, the legislative development, but for sure you can try to give to your client, to the employer, uh, the certainty that the legal framework uh, doesn't give at, at the moment. So uh, specifying as more as you can, what are the duties and what are the freedom and let the rider or the gig worker, uh, let them able to accept or non accept the proposal you make by day by day or uh, chance by chance. And above all, uh, trying to set up rules where you don't direct too much their work you just look for a result. You just offer what they can do. And if they do uh, well, if they don't uh, well as well, because otherwise if you link penalty to the refuse of work, then you get back in a, in a, in a gray zone. So uh, it's, a, it's a, let's say it's a Uber driver, taxi driver. You, you take the ride, you give the ride, you accept the ride, that's it. But it's a, Mutual consent every time, everywhere, because otherwise, if there is any obligation in accepting the proposal, then uh, you became uh, you, you, you are you can be put in a very risky zone. So, is there no room for the, using the word obligation to a gig worker? No, I don't think that's true. Uh, I think that uh, at least in the states. Uh, you can, I mean, just like anything else, you could have a painter come to your house to do your house, and the obligation is to paint these walls or paint this room, uh, just like you would with uh, somebody that you would independently contract with perform a task. Whatever that job is that you're asking them to perform, certainly there's an obligation on their part to do that. There's nothing that's illegal about that in the States, um, you know, but... What you have to do is to make sure, um, from a, from a state perspective, you got to know what the different standards are and the different laws are, and those are flexible. Those move. Um, 
It also depends upon who's in power, who's who's the administration, the current administration, because they could put somebody else in some of the government agencies that oversight the, uh, oversight these these rules, and they'll come up with different interpretations, kind of like what Jan was saying earlier about Germany. I mean, there's going to be some different interpretations that could happen. So you got to know what the standards are. You got to keep up with them, set your standards and develop them, then draft that contract that Jan mentioned. You know that you got to have. And it needs to follow those standards. So it needs to be uh, technically compliant with what those standards ought to be. And then the third thing is, and what you see oftentimes employers do is, well, they got the contract, but they don't comply with it anyhow. You know, they, they're out there, the, the business is out there, and they demand other things or they do other things to get around that contractual language. They don't pay attention to the boundaries that are supposed to exist if you're truly an independent contractor. If you start to bring in more control, if you start to gain more uh, of, of that control over that independent worker, then they're going to say, well, you're, you're not even complying with your own contract. So why should we think that that contract has any control whatsoever if you're trying to enforce that as being truly independent? You know, in that earlier conversation, I was thinking about the protections that would be afforded a gig worker. Uh, are there such provisions in Germany, Jan? Um, yeah, so the the provisions are um, mostly come mostly from the contracts these people have. Of course, there is um, a certain degree of protection, but the um, the the huge uh, protection. A relatively huge protection an employee would get from the German, German labor laws, they are not available to to these people, and um, so mostly what what they what they can can claim as legal protection is stipulated in their contract if they are really independent contractors, um, and um, of course general rules or general laws are applicable. They 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 can rely on data privacy rules. They can rely on standard contract rules. But all the labor and employment law, like uh, minimum wage or um, minimum vacation claims, uh, protection against unfair dismissal, all of them are not applicable to them. So they, they, they are really, in that sense, much less protected than employees are. And what we see uh, at the moment also in Germany is that this is something which is really perceived from the employee side, from the union side as a threat. So where the unions are saying these gig economy people or the gig economy as such is trying to take away for what unions were fighting the last hundred years. So like this is this is everything we we won in these hard struggles over the last hundred years. And now these big corporations come and take that away by simply labeling these people as gig economy and in fact our employees are, are not. So this is the big fight which is at the moment going on. And um, a, I don't know how the situation in the US, and I would be really interested in what, what Bruce would say or also Angelo, what you would say in Italy. We, we have a big a union in, in Germany, which is the uh, IG Metall, which is the, the big uh, steelworking union. And they at the moment are trying to set up a union for YouTube content producers. So this is like, you know, oh when, you, when, when you hear that, you think it's crazy, but it's an initiative which is going on, which is led by one of the major German unions. 
and they're saying, we would like to have a union for people who are working for YouTube and are producing content for YouTube. And these are, I think, a classical gig work field. Um, and they, they struggle with that. They know there are huge legal obstacles to, to overcome, but this is where this goes probably. Angela, do you have something to comment in terms of painting the picture in Italy? <laughs> Yes, of course, because it's so liquid that I see that any jurisdiction is facing in a, in a maybe different approach, being a common law jurisdiction rather than civil law jurisdiction. But for sure, there are some common points that make, uh, make the situation or the global scenario quite common where more you control such a worker, more you organize such a worker, more you put sanction in terms of obligation to be perform, and if not, what happens, then more you, you get to the gray zone or let's say you, you fall down in, in the, the employment area. The precedent decision I, I was taking in an example, the case law we had in Turin recently last year and two years ago, uh, they took from from this point, if there was a natural direction from the the client, let's say the unique client this rider had, and the point was also we had a law provision where even if you are a self-employer, if the client, let's say the, 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 the principal, uh, give you or let's say direct you in terms of performance, place and time where you have to perform uh, the service you are providing at that point and this is the difficulty of the of our law at that point you are not an employee but you will be applied with the discipline the legal discipline of an employee meaning that you are not a fully employee employee relationship but you need protection at that stage, when you are a self-worker, freelancer, but so organized, so direct in, in your performing services, at that point, the legislature jump up. And, I, and it's not a problem where I classify you. The problem is how do we protect you? And this means that applying them, the legal discipline of uh, employee uh, is not in terms of, as Jan said, uh, holidays or above all dismissals because this doesn't belong to their nature. The problem is the minimum salary. How do I pay you? How much I pay you? And now the new draft law excludes uh, the possibility to pay such a gig worker only on performance base, totally variable, needs at least a, a, a minimum uh, basis on which you are fixed paid. Because I could see where that would raise questions, especially exactly. if I'm in the organization performing the same job as an employee see, versus the gig. Exactly. But now the, 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 the draft law is not in place. So that we know that a minimum salary protection will rise up for sure, as well as health and safety policies. Because, for instance, the riders... <laughs> are quite a, a risky activity or risky a performance, no? So car accident or whatever, injuries or, or whatever. So the clients, the principal has to provide to such a worker or such a performer uh, at least uh, this environment in safety and minimum wage. 
So these are two items that the employers can look to as they further develop their workforce and yeah. make considerations for gigs. We are almost out of time for this podcast, um, but I didn't. I just wanted to revisit uh, with Bruce whether or not you know. From I found it very interesting what Jan was saying about the union related. Have you heard any inklings about that in the states? Oh yeah, I think I think the unions like anything else. Uh, they. They oppose any kind of situation where a business is going outside the box and not putting workers as employees because that eliminates the possibility of them being able to organize that group of workers. And then, of course, their their major complaint that they make across the board is that employers take advantage of them, of even their own employees, that they don't pay them high enough wages, that they don't provide a good enough standard of living. Uh, unions go out and support, for example, in the United States, you know, increasing the minimum wage for all for all lower level workers. So certainly when I heard that from Jan, you know, I, I understand the unions tend to work in the background on some of those things. Uh, I did have a couple of cases involving like truck drivers uh, where, where um, there was a, the, the, this particular individual company had set up a model where the truck drivers themselves were independent contractors. And so they had independent contractual contracts with those individuals. They had their own individual routes, but how they ran those routes, et cetera, were all uh, subject to litigation. We ended up in litigation with the Department of Labor. We ended up in litigation with individuals and ultimately won the case. But there are situations where I could see, depending upon how that model was set up and how the contracts were drafted, where it could be an issue. And certainly those are the kinds of things which take jobs away, potentially, and union members away from unions. So unions would oppose any kind of process that we all have been talking about today because that would take away the potential for them to be able to truly organize that group of people. Okay, well, I can see from this discussion that we're beginning, and thankfully, we're putting this gig economy into a series because there is many aspects of this um, across jurisdictions, across the world. But we're just about out of time on this one. So I want to thank all of you for being here with me today and sharing your insights and thoughts on this gig economy. It's such a hot topic for employers, really impacting the workplace around the world. I want to thank our listeners for joining us today for another episode of Employment Matters. If you'd like more information on any of these topics that have been presented, there's a lot of resources on the ELA.law website, as well as information on how to contact these member firms, these individual experts that have shared their thought leadership with me today. Visit us at ELA.law. And also, I want to remind you to follow us on Twitter at ELA Global. <music>